it was her most cherished jewel. I just get sort of um, rather excited by the fact that I'm on the very spot. Joan of Navarre is probably one of our least known queens of England, full stop. I love this fact they sort of stopped for lunch halfway through the rebellion. He actually reaches down into the guy's throat and gets the diamond back. Welcome to History Gems, where we've got a really super exciting episode lined up for today. We're going to be talking about Fabergé, famous for their beautifully decorated eggs, of course, and the Romanovs. And here to talk to us about this iconic brand and its history is the wonderful Gareth Russell. It's the only one of Fabergé's eggs that looks like an egg. When you open it, um, this sort of white exterior gives way to gold and a little golden hen with uh, ruby eyes and the hen is sitting on a red velvet cushion. These were family gifts and of course they're sort of they're ludicrously extravagant but I think that cuts to the heart of, of why we're still intrigued by the Romanov story and why the Fabergé eggs and the Fabergé pieces in general are this perfect representation because there is there is power, there is panoply, there's pomp, but there's also personal, and there's also the, the sheer tragedy. Gareth is a brilliant historian, novelist, and playwright. His fantastic books include The Ship of Dreams, which is a superb book about the Titanic, Young and Damned and Fair, about Catherine Howard, and The Emperors. Hi Gareth, welcome to History Gems and thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure Nicola, thank you so much for having me. It's a real privilege and I'm so excited to talk to you because you are so prolific in so many areas and I'm really really looking forward to, to learning today about the Romanovs and we're going to be talking today about Fabergé who most people associate with the famous eggs and they are inextricably linked with the Romanovs, the Russian imperial family. But before we come to that, are you able to just start by telling us a little bit about Fabergé? Well, as you say, um, he is uh, associated sort of inextricably with the Romanovs. And I think part of that is that the Romanov story in modern culture is really kind of a crucible of splendor and sorrow. Mm. And so in that sense, you know, Fabergé created some of the most splendid um, and glittering pieces of jewellery. But he, and but some people are sort of intrigued by his, his name. Um, Fabergé is not a Russian name, but he himself was Russian. And, it, and the family were sort of swept across Europe by the tides of history. They were originally Huguenot French. And uh, like many skilled artisans, they had to leave, or they felt they had to leave France after uh, King Louis XIV cancelled the Edict of Nantes that had given French Protestants sort of parity of esteem with Catholics in the 17th century. And so a lot of very skilled um, artists and uh, people very valuable to the French economy really left. Some went... um, uh, to the north of Ireland, quite a lot went to England, but some, including the Fabergé family or the Fabergé family, they added the fancy acute later. Um, they went west. Sorry, excuse me, eastward 
And they ended up in sort of the German uh, speaking province of Livonia, which is now Estonia, but was eventually incorporated into the Romanov Empire. So they were quite a, you know, they had a mixed ancestry. Um, that had sort of taken them through France, Germany, the Baltic states. But his father, uh, Gustav, founded the, the House of Fabergé, which is really kind of, you know, the the um, the centre of their business in 1842. And Peter Carl is definitely the most famous of the Fabergé sort of master craftsmen. As you mentioned, the, the eggs are the most famous, and it was Peter Carl who created them. And he was born four years after the uh his father set the company up which means that he really was born into this the family had been jewelers and craftsmen as i've said for years but it was peter carl who took them on this remarkable upward trajectory and the turning point um seems to have been we're sort of you know as you know nicola the hermitage collection is one of the most famous in the world then and actually the house of fabergé was originally contracted by the Romanovs to sort of do um, upkeep work on the Hermitage pieces, particularly some of the antique pieces. And in 1882, uh, Peter Carl and the House of Fabergé were asked to attend the Pan-Russian exhibition in Moscow. And this is probably the point where the the career really takes off. Um, The Pan-Russian exhibition of 1882 was particularly important for the Romanov monarchy. It came at a very difficult time. It was less than a year after Tsar Alexander II had been assassinated in in a bomb attack by an anarchist. So obviously that really had struck right to the, the heart of the imperial family, but it also signalled a massive change in direction and tone by the monarchy itself. Alexander II had been nicknamed the Tsar Liberator. He seemed to be much more sympathetic to uh, moderately liberal causes. And his murder brought his son. Um, Ironically, the revolutionaries had sort of hoped to usher in a much more radical period, but by killing Alexander II, they they in fact paved the way for his ultra-conservative son to become Alexander III. And Alexander III really was regarded as, you know, a total hero by Russian nationalists and Russian conservatives. And so the pan-Russian exhibition really was about showcasing this new, uh, more nationalist, more insular, more conservative direction that the monarchy was choosing to proceed down uh, under Alexander III. And he took a great interest in it. And one of the pieces that the Hermitage had allegedly wanted to lend for the exhibition, but there were concerns that it was too fragile to transport from St. Petersburg to Moscow, was a 4th century BC um, sort of Scythian gold bracelet. Oh, wow. And the House of Fabergé made a replica for the exhibition and Alexander III saw it. And he was so impressed that he that he said he couldn't tell the difference between the real one and the copy that they had made. And so um, Peter Carl Fabergé was sort of brought in uh, more closely to regular contact with Alexander III and his family and was made... Um, sort of a purveyor to the court. And not long after that, the contract for the first egg was placed. So that's sort of a potted history of the family and then how they ended up becoming so 
how they initially became so close to the Romanovs. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating and completely amazing that that the Tsar was so impressed by this piece that Fabergé had created and you know likened it to this this original piece that you've just described. Was it a royal tradition among the Romanovs to give one another jeweled eggs? It wasn't necessarily a tradition solely within the Romanovs, it, but it did spring from a tradition at the Russian court. Um, so the Russian Orthodox Church Technically, within Christianity in general, Easter is supposed to be the main festival. Uh, And certainly in liturgical terms, it is. But generally speaking, in Western Christianity, Christmas is celebrated much more, as we know, more widely than Easter tends to be. Mm. Uh, That is not generally the case in, in Russian Orthodox Christianity, and certainly it wasn't in the 19th century. The 40 days of Lent were really strictly adhered to. And so the moment when Holy Week arrived and Easter was celebrated was was a was a big moment. And how it usually uh, played out was that on Easter Sunday within the imperial household, the Tsar and the Tsarina would give eggs to all the members of the household staff and sort of depending on where they were in the hierarchy they might be made of malachite they might be made of jasper they might be made of porcelain and so there was a tradition within the romanov household of royalty gifting the eggs and in 1885 three years after the exhibition alexander iii hit upon the idea of having Fabergé create one more egg uh, to the usual ones that were given out that the Tsar would give to his wife. So it it was a departure from tradition, but it sprang from a tradition. Ah, okay. Is this this the hen's egg? It's the hen's egg, yes. Um, And which is, which in comparison is, uh, you know, it's the only one of Fabergé's eggs that looks like an egg. Really? you know, it's because it, we know the. I mean, they, they all have most of them have a, a, an egg-like shape. Yeah. But the the hen's egg, as you say, the eighteen eighty-five one that uh, Alexander the Third gave to his Danish wife, the Empress Marie, uh, is one of the only ones that re- that from its exterior was designed to look like an actual egg. It's it's when you open it, um, this sort of white exterior gives way to gold and a little golden hen with uh, ruby eyes and the hen is sitting on a red velvet cushion and when you lift the hen the surprise was a little replica of the Romanov imperial state crown and the Empress Marie was utterly delighted by this um, so this started the tradition that every Easter Alexander III would, would have Fabergé make an Easter egg um, that he would then give to the Empress Marie. And it was a mark of the Tsar's respect for Fabergé's talent that the only stipulation was that it should be for Easter and that it should contain a surprise. And Marie herself, I mean, she was completely in awe of Fabergé. She refers to him in her letters as an incomparable genius. And the tradition was maintained uh, nine years later, Alexander III died quite prematurely from kidney failure, which brought his son to the throne, Nicholas II, far earlier than anyone had anticipated. And Nicholas decided to keep up the tradition of ordering the Fabergé eggs, but he expanded it. So 
there were two commissioned from 1894 onwards, one that would go to Nicholas's widowed mother, Marie, and one that would go to his own wife, Alexandra. Okay. And in terms of, so you mentioned the surprise. So Mm. was that, did the Tsar have any input into the surprise or was that completely left to Fabergé's imagination? From what we can tell, it was completely left up to Fabergé. And there was this, which is unusual, there tends to be a little bit of pressure put on. Um, And according to Fabergé's granddaughter, Tatiana, and to multiple other sources, including from the Romanov's papers themselves, they they did not know what was coming. And actually for the Tsars, they quite liked it. I mean, I've always wondered, you know, was there a bit of a risk that he would get it, you know, he would get it wrong. Um, but he he never seems to have put up it wrong. He was uh, he was as the Empress Marie said, an incomparable genius. That's, I mean, that's incredible. And I think um, the result of this royal patronage for Fabergé is that he is at some point made the official supplier, if you like, to the imperial court. Is that right? Yes, and and actually, you know, that it's not just the eggs, as she said. That first of all, it it the prestige of the Romanov name um, makes him internationally known. So the, the main contracts are, you know, the, the big pieces are the eggs every Easter for the, the Tsarina and for the Dodger Empress. But he, you know, he's also doing things like um, the Empress Marie, her favourite pet parrot dies. And so he immortalises the parrot in a, in a carving of jade. There are parasol handles done. Some Russian aristocrats ask for um, bejeweled bell um, pushes and buttons to summon their servants. And they're little miniature eggs that the empress starts to wear uh, in her necklace, miniature eggs, sorry, to wear in her necklaces for Easter. So there's a lot. And the Romanovs also tend to commission him uh, to convey their esteem. So because his name is so associated with the court, if an outside body receives a gift from the Romanovs through Fabergé, it's a sign of how how highly the imperial family thinks of them. So for instance, you have the Dodger Empress Marie in, I think, 1908. Um, she commissions a huge silver punch bowl for the 250th anniversary of uh, a guards regiment that she is the sort of honorary colonel-in-chief of. And that's a real sign of just how devoted she was to this regiment, etc. So it has a utility to the Romanovs, as well as giving them splendid gifts within the family. They can use Fabergé to show which causes and organisations they're, um, they're particularly devoted to. This must, even though it's obviously a, a huge compliment to his abilities and um you know brings him great prestige there must also be a huge amount of pressure on him um you know fulfilling all of these grand commissions as well there was and he was not a man to mince his words you know he um he apparently could to use a slightly modern uh, comparison there's a touch of you know People like Miranda Priestley from The Devil Wears Prada de Fabergé. He's not he's not the softest going um, boss on or, or the jewelers and the, and the craftsmen who are brought in because as you say the the output is enormous and Fabergé really does have to concentrate personally on the the main pieces. 
and workers at the House of Fabergé say, you know, he he would summon you to berate you if the if the if this sketch wasn't good enough. But to give him credit, he was as harsh on himself. There was once he more than once he allegedly sort of tore verbal strips from a jewelry designer. Uh, for a sketch that he just said wasn't good enough and wasn't up to snuff until the um, the jewellery designer found the original sketch and proved it was actually Fabergé himself who'd done it. No one who can shout at me, I'll have to shout at myself. So, you know, this at least he was, he expected perfection from himself as well. And that's probably one of the reasons why he was he was so trusted. And he also, I think, he got to know a lot of the Romanovs, and, and interestingly, he he does seem to have had a gift for picking themes for the surprises that were more domestic in nature. There were some, and there were major events like the Trans-Siberian Railway being completed, or for the three hundredth anniversary of Romanov rule in nineteen thirteen. Certainly, he does seem to have you know picked out the more political. Uh, things, you know, little miniature um, trains inside the egg or um, multiple portraits of of Romanovs over the generations for for the anniversary. But typically, you know, there's a lot of eggs that he created that contained, you know, domestic scenes. The Dowager Empress, after her husband's death, spent quite a lot of time in Denmark, where she born and so he put little images of her the villa that she bought with her sister queen alexandra of britain he put that inside one time he put a model of her of her private yacht and he all and our the um one that she seems to particularly have loved was an, a model inside of the gachina palace which is where she and alexander the third had raised most of their children and this kind of quite you know this ability to merge uh, personal domestic bliss with the glitter and sparkle of jewellery meant that Marie also took to sending Fabergé gifts to her mother, Queen Louise of Denmark, and to her uh, to her brother-in-law, the future King Edward VII of Britain. And it meant that these that it, Fabergé acquired a very high-profile, very wide-ranging international clientele. So there was... Um, there was method and there was behind the sort of this artistic output. And in that way, I think he, he did kind of, he was sort of the precursor to the haute couture fashion houses that we see that it, it's not just the output, but it's who you're sending them to. It's who they're seen with and who they're associated with. And the fact that it's more or less associated with most of the great Royal families of Europe means that of course, everyone, the who's who wants to be seen owning it and wearing it. And that's when you start to see things like these extraordinarily beautiful cigarette cases that he's famous for. Mm. And he also moves at the time. Some of them, there's a, there's a gorgeous blue enamel one with a sort of, I think, a, like a diamond serpent crawling over it. And that's much more Art Nouveau. It's, 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 it's moved on from the more Victorian styles he started with. So he did keep his finger on the pulse of what was happening throughout um the world of high society and also the changing world of art and taste. So he kept himself current really right the way up to the revolution. That's so fascinating. And I mean, you've touched on this already, but you know, this idea that um, his, the patronage that he receives from the Imperial court gains him this worldwide fame. And I think 
doesn't he doesn't he also make commissions for for other people i mean i think i read somewhere for example that he had he'd done some work for the duchess of marlborough as well maybe yes she did actually um she had one that was um that was almost a, it was close to being a copy of an egg um and it certainly come it is referred to as an egg and i think he certainly he made it different enough that it didn't look like she was getting a romanoff knockoff because i think there is also a there's a really fine balance that you have to maintain when you have clients this prestigious because the Romanovs had to feel like what they were getting was unique. Mm-hmm. He was, after all, the purveyor to the imperial court, and this was their idea. So the, he, but he, if he got someone as high profile as the Duchess of Marlborough, she kind of wanted something like the Tsarina had. And he seems to have, to have trod that uh, with his customary skill. It also meant it, it, it was probably what helped keep the pulse of the House of Fabergé beating after the fall of the monarchy, because there was already this international bedrock that they could that they could fall back on when the Romanovs were no longer on the throne. Ah, I see. Because that's what I was going to ask you next: was what does actually happen to Fabergé during the Russian Revolution, and you know what impact does this have? Well, he's, it's interesting if you look at the last set of eggs, there is a sense of dimming. I mean, the last egg that he commissioned for Tsarina Alexandra, well, sorry, the last one that he finished for the Tsarina Alexandra is is quite a dark piece, I, I would say. Um, it is called the Steel Military Egg, and it is the base of it looks like bullets. And, and inside there's the surprise is the Tsar and his son reading military maps at the front. The year before, it had been through the Red Cross egg, which is pro- oddly probably one of my um, my personal favourites of it. And I think it's currently at the Cleveland Museum of Art in Ohio, and it shows the Tsar's two eldest daughters, Olga and Tatiana, who... Um, volunteered as nurses for the Red Cross, hence its name, during the First World War. They actively served in the wards. And inside he has images of their patron saints. So there is a sense of kind of the splendour beginning to recede. And when the monarchy collapses and Russia is, is, there's a period, there's two revolutions. There's the February Revolution in 1917 that brings down the monarchy. places it with a democratic republic that lasts until October when the communists seize power. And in those months, the, um, for want of a better word, the workshop of Fabergé is unionised um, and, and control is taken over by the workers. And then later when the communists take over, it's nationalised. And fairly obviously, I mean, it, regardless of one's politics, I think you can see that the unionising of a firm whose sole purpose is providing luxury goods to the elite is probably going to create a conflict of interest. And and what how are you going? You know, what is Fabergé going to do now that the elite are either being murdered or fleeing for their lives? And eventually, the Fabergé family uh, flee for their lives. Car- Peter Carl gets away on the last diplomatic train out of St. Petersburg, or Petrograd as it was then, and his son and his wife flee under cover of darkness sort of you know it's it's like something out of dr shivago they use um sledges to get north 
from St. Petersburg to Finland. Oh my God. And then around to Scandinavia. And Peter Carl Fabergé goes to Switzerland. As I say, they do have these um, international clientele as a base, but Peter Carl never really recovers from the heartbreak. Uh, of seeing the monarchy he had served collapse and his original workshop ransacked. And he dies in Switzerland not long after reaching there. Now, the family do continue it. And as I say, they have been relatively successful. They still they still exist, to the best of my knowledge. Yeah. One of the more tragic pieces of the Fabergé story is sort of the detritus from Imperial Russia. The Dowager Empress had usually travelled with a lot of her Fabergé eggs, but she left them behind on the occasion she left St. Petersburg for the last time, although she didn't know it. Mm. Um, a lot of the Fabergé pieces were thus seized by the Soviet government, who then sold them because they were bankrupt. And there are some really quite sad moments um, of the Romanovs encountering Fabergé afterwards, because for a lot of people, those were personal um purchases and they should not have been allowed to be you know western governments and western art collections like christie's who start auctioning the first eggs in the 1920s should not have taken them should not have bought them from the soviet government there's a particularly sad moment when the last czar's sister the grand duchess kazenia is living in britain and she's at dinner with a socialite who shows her um, a lovely bejeweled jewellery box that she's bought at one of the Christie's auctions. And she says, oh, I wonder who owned it. And Kazenia pointed to the monogram and said, that was mine. <gasps> her her dead brother had given it to her. And so there's, it's, it's really, there's, a, there's, you know, it's obviously a lot of the Fabergé pieces look so decadent, but there is an emotional investment to this. These were family gifts. And of course they're sort of, they're ludicrously extravagant, but I think that cuts to the heart of, of why we're still intrigued by the Romanov story and why the Fabergé eggs and the Fabergé pieces in general are this perfect representation because there is, there is power, there is panoply, there's pomp, but there's also personal and there's also the, the sheer tragedy of, of the, the horror that overtook the Romanovs in the years after 1917 adds an extra poignancy to looking at the Fabergé pieces today. It really does. And I feel quite moved listening to that because I hadn't appreciated that before or, or thought of it in that way. But, but you know, you're so right. That just sounds, it sounds really quite tragic thinking about, you know, the fate of these eggs and, and, and these pieces as well. And I think, Am I right in saying that I think that there are 57 eggs that survive today? Is that right? I think your hesitation is correct because there's always the uh, question mark of, are there other ones that we just don't know about? But yes, to all intents and purposes, 57 are known to survive. And the prices fluctuate because as we, you know, just discussed, there are, there's there's great differences between you know, say the, the steel military egg has a certain cachet because it's the last that Alexandra received. But there's no point in pretending that it comes, you know, anywhere close to something like the egg that was given to celebrate the birth of the Tsar's second daughter. And it's sort of, you know, it's, it's I think it's the lily of the valley egg, but it's, you know, it's covered with pearls and the shape of flowers. You know, there's, there's a lot more artistic skill there. So the price of the, the eggs today can really fluctuate. Um, uh, to the best of my knowledge, and, and obviously converting uh, currency is a bit difficult, yeah. but there was one that went for £24.7 million sterling, and it wasn't um, 
it really was not the most artistically elaborate. But interestingly, it went into a private collection. And that, to me, would suggest that there was someone who was really keen to own one of the eggs because of the Romanoff Association. So there is, and you know this yourself, Nicola, with some pieces of jewellery, sometimes the association totally trumps the comparative artistic worth. You yeah. know, So I think that that's part of where you can see the price fluctuation. That's utterly fascinating. And I mean, wow. So really, they're priceless, many of them, because of... They are. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're talking, I mean, I think as someone said, um, a single egg just went for the price of three really good beachfront mansions in the Hamptons. Like, I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it, um, it is totally it's totally extraordinary and they have retained the exclusivity yeah because 57 i remember when i first started researching the faberge eggs for a book i did when about the romanoffs a few years ago yeah. and i was surprised that it was 57 because to me that sounded like quite a lot it does but in fact, it, i mean it is it's certainly more than you would imagine yeah. survive as chaotic as the Russian revolutions, but in relative, sorry, in comparative terms, that means there really isn't uh, a lot of them, and quite a few have ended up. You know, there's some gorgeous ones at the Met in New York. There are some in pseudo private collections. So the Queen owns a few. Prince Albert of Monaco owns one, but also generally monarchies are quite good at letting pseudo private pieces go on public display. So there is a limited amount that a private collector can get and and own for themselves, which which I think it partly explains the price. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I was going to ask, do we know if any of them are actually in Russia now? There are there is a Fabergé museum okay. uh, in Petersburg, and there are quite a few of them. Yes, that have been brought back either by oligarchs or have um, that didn't sell under the Soviet regime. So yes, there are there are a decent number of them. I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure because I do think that, that there's a whiff of mystery mm-hmm. about how many of them stay, and there have been concerns about could an extraordinarily gifted fraudster. Um, perhaps create decent copies of some of the later eggs, particularly the last year or two. The the eggs that really were not photographed that much and weren't seen as much on public display as some of the earlier ones were, because it was the middle of a war. The royal, fa- the imperial family, excuse me, weren't really socialising that much, and also there wasn't a lot of time left for the monarchy to display these. So there have been, cons- I mean. It, Personally, I don't think museums would be foolhardy enough not to do a thorough check. But there have been concerns that, you know, some of the litter eggs, particularly the ones that went to the Dodge or Empress, could be um, expertly forged. How interesting. And the other thing I was going to ask is I think then at some point after Fabergé died, and you mentioned that the family continued with the business, but I think... um, I think at some point it was sold, wasn't it? And I think that the trademark has has since been sold several times. Yeah, I don't, I mean, yes, that's absolutely correct. I think there are, inevitably in a lot of family businesses, you do see this happening and you do see the trademark being transferred. And the House of Fabergé has, have done very well with 
you know, their, their scent is now particularly, I think, a big seller. And they have been able to continue marketing on a certain cachet that comes from the Imperial Russian collection. The crest is still very reminiscent of, of Imperial Russia. And, that, and I do think the Romanov connection still lends a certain class that has survived the, the transfer of the trademark. But they don't trade in the kind of extraordinary um, and bespoke jewellery that they that they did it before the revolution or even immediately afterwards. I think that's a bit of a shame in some ways. I think actually a lot of people would love to own, you know, something in that ilk with the Fabergé name on it. I personally think there would still be people who would be very, who would want that name and if it was up to the right level of skill. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, but it has been absolutely fascinating hearing about Fabergé and the Romanovs and how you know his his jewelry business did become the largest in the world at the one point at one point so thank you so much Gareth for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us today um, what I would also like to ask you is if you are able to tell us anything about what you're working on at the moment. Sure uh, well I'm currently working on a book called The Palace by the River which is a history of Hampton Court Palace, but really the the people who've lived there. So trying to tell the stories where there was an arc of the British monarchy. So a different room and a different person uh, each decade and each chapter moving forward. That sounds absolutely fantastic. And I, for one, definitely cannot wait to read that. Um, are we you able to tell us when that's going to be released? It's looking like it will be sort of early 2022. Fantastic. And very, very finally, for listeners who want to find out more about you and your work, where can they find you? They can find me on Instagram, uh, underscore Gareth Russell, or they can go on to Facebook and my um, Facebook page is Gareth Russell, author and historian. So you can check out either of those. And I try to post regularly with um, bits of historical information and on this day and I welcome sort of communicating with readers on those platforms and I can confirm that your posts are always very interesting and I always very much enjoy them so. oh thank you very much <laughs> well <laughs> Karen, thank you so much it's been brilliant and I feel like I've learned so much so it's been a real pleasure and thank you for your time thank you for having me All of Gareth's books are available to purchase in all good bookshops and I can very highly recommend all of them. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast and I will be posting some pictures of some of Fabergé's surviving pieces on our social media pages. So you can check those out on the at History Gems pod page on both Instagram and Twitter. If you enjoyed this podcast, please press subscribe and leave us a rating and review. And remember to tune in for the next episode of History Gems.